The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's Wednesday, April the 11th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With just six weeks to go now to the referendum on the repeal of the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, both sides are ramping up their campaigns. And in a little while, we will be joined by Alva Smith, co-director of Together for a Yes, who is one of a number of the key protagonists who we'll be talking to in the coming weeks. But first, uh, Pat Leahy, our political editor, is in studio to look at the other political events of the week. It's all commemorations this week, Pat, with the Belfast Agreement or the Good Friday Agreement. Agreement, depending on what your newspaper house style is. Well, our newspaper house style is to call it the Belfast Agreement, uh, which obviously confuses everybody because everyone else calls it the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, that's so the, I that's think, the way we roll. Uh, that is true, but I think um, given the somewhat loose na- nature of these proceedings, somewhat we might call it the Good Friday Agreement here, if that's all right with you. That's 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 perfitely fine. Um, I'm suffering from a bit of commemoration itis, um, as if this as if the never ending centenary commemorations aren't bad enough. We're now into commemorating twenty years of the Good Friday Agreement. But I suppose yesterday seemed to be the big day in that all the, the big honchos were in town, Bill Clinton. Indeed, yeah. Well, yesterday, I suppose, was the, uh, even though it was on uh, it was on Good Friday, See, obviously the day of Good Friday moves every year. So yesterday was the calendar anniversary of it, and that was the one that was decided to hold the main commemorations on. And I think that the, the commemorations had a sort of an extra contemporary relevance because of the difficulties in... Uh, the process at the moment with the institutions having been suspended for over a year and it seems no immediate prospect of their resurrection. The nature of some of them which involved the protagonists of 20 years ago talking about how they came to agreement and the moves and the sacrifices and the compromises that were made to achieve that uh, agreement I think is probably fairly useful but it also shines an unflattering light I think on the current leadership of both governments and the principal parties involved. This was a message that the leaders who made the agreement 20 years ago were delivering with varying degrees of subtlety. 
uh, to the leaders uh, was that you know that, that they they needed to learn from the sacrifices and compromises made 20 years ago and go ahead and make similar moves today to bring about a res- resuscitation of the institution. That likely to have any effect at all? I don't think so. It's difficult to say, really. Northern Ireland is so far down the list of priorities in Downing Street that it barely registers on them at all. In Dublin, it is much less of a priority than it used to be, uh, although it is not at all unimportant. It's a much higher priority in Dublin, I think, than it is uh, in London. Now, ultimately, any agreement has to be made between the parties in Stormont. And the two governments cannot make that happen by fiat. But one of the things that both Bertie Hearn and Tony Blair were saying over recent days, and Bill Clinton, uh, to a different extent, were saying, is that that engagement with the governments, and I thought it was noticeable that Bertie Hearn made this point very clearly, that the governments needed, the two governments needed to up their level of engagement with the Northern Ireland parties to promote uh, an agreement. I just wonder, I mean, there's a couple of points. Some of them have been brought up by by Bertie O'Hearn, I think, in the last week as well. And and a couple of other people have made this point is that the context within which the agreement happened was in the context of two countries within the European Union who had a series of relationships within European Union structures and that that was one of the things which had which had allowed the much better relationships between Downing Street and Dublin to develop over the course of the 1980s and 1990s and obviously all that stuff is in jeopardy now because of Brexit and there's various examples in the last week of senior British politicians mouthing off in unhelpful and if not anti-agreement ways, certainly not terribly in favour of it, the, uh, a Labour front bencher describing the Good Friday Agreement as a shibboleth which, as our educated listeners will know, is a sort of a a, a religious trophy which has uh, outworn its use. I think there's a couple of things there. It, it, the role of the EU in reaching the agreement of 20 years ago uh, was was minimal, despite the fact that, you know, for their own political purposes, the Irish government has played up the role of the EU in the peace process. And while it was important in the subsequent process, the actual agreement... Uh, you know, that was made 20 years ago, which we're commemorating this week, had very little to do with the EU. What is true is that relations between the Irish and British governments, their common involvement and often finding themselves on the same side in the EU uh, over the previous 20 years was one of the things, not the totality of the story, but one of the things that enabled better relations at official level, which enabled them to grease the wheels uh, of the uh, of the settlement. That relationship, and it's very obvious this week, the Anglo-Irish relationship has been under strain for some time because of Brexit, and that is having an effect in Stormont. Um, we saw that yesterday. David Davis made some comments about uh, essentially the Irish government kind of pandering to Sinn Féin or that Sinn Féin's influence had made the Irish government adopt a harder negotiating stance on we've Brexit. Been, we've been hearing that and kind th- of thing for a while with, with, our, with our old friend, the political editor of The Sun, I think channeling views, views of senior Conservative Party members saying the same thing last year. Yeah, uh, it's a trope that has been knocking around in senior Tory party circles for, uh, for some time. Uh, it was... An, I mean, I think you have to take two things, right? First of all, the lack of wisdom or political sense of David Davis in saying those things in public, even if he believed them. 
And then the immediate response of the two most senior people in the Irish government, which was to come straight out, Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney, was to come straight out and tell him he was talking rubbish. I think in the past, whilst there were certainly disagreements between the uh, the Irish and British governments in relation to the peace process, they always made a special effort not to allow those difficulties come uh, come out into the public. And it was when they were most annoyed, uh, people in Dublin that is, that when they were most annoyed with the British, that they would be most friendly towards them in public. Now, that political sense seems to have been abandoned by both sides. And I, I think we are seeing in public a true... A picture of Anglo-Irish relations between the governments which have deteriorated very significantly because of Brexit. Pat, thanks for that. My ultimate political aspiration remains the coming together of all the people of Ireland achieved peacefully and by consent. I value deeply the close relationship between the Irish government and the British government. But I look forward equally to a new era of friendship and reconciliation between unionists and nationalists, in which each tradition can learn truly the value of the other. And we're joined now by Alva Smith, who's co-director of Together for Yes, which is the main umbrella organisation for the campaign for repeal of the Eighth Amendment. Alva, uh, yes. this is a big week for the campaign. Yes, yes, I, I think it is. I mean, we um, launched our crowdfunding campaign yesterday, and um, I look back on yesterday as in some way another era I was sitting on a train yesterday morning saying how I will donate to our crowdfunding campaign to get you know help get this ball rolling because we had a target of 15,000 to raise 15,000 in the first day of this week-long campaign and as the train trundled along to Dublin I was getting in texts from people saying god we're at 10 we're at 20 and then then when I got to Dublin we're at 50. And by the end of the day, of course, we had um, raised, I think, a quarter of a million so euro. And this morning, surprised were you by that? Well, we, that's in a way what I'm saying to you. I mean, we had mm-hmm. a target of 15,000. So we were, I'm not sure the chocked is the right word. We were immensely surprised. It was beyond our, our wildest expectation. Um, but of course, also very, very uh, thrilled and pleased because uh, very clearly this indicates that there is this really wide support for um, for the Together for Yes campaign and specifically for removing the Eighth Amendment from the Constitution and that people are willing to and un- they were waiting, it was as if they were only waiting for this opportunity to put their hands in their pockets and to say we're with you, we're up there, we're up for this and to say here we are, we're donating now and I think I mean they were relatively speaking I suppose what you would call small, small donations but actually they're more than the, the usual 10 or 15 or 20 euro because I checked with our um, data analytics uh, people before I came over here and the average donation is I think 37 euro so that gives you a sense of where where it's kind of located and I think you know you know, this would be a lot of people who maybe don't have a huge amount of money, but who really do feel the passion, who feel strongly that this is something they want to see happening now. They want to see the Eighth Amendment going from the Constitution now. So we are now, we've set a new target. We have, and, and what is that target? Uh, the new target, I think now, is 350,000 by the end of this, this crowdfunding week. And you're at what number right now as We're we speak at, on Wednesday morning? Um, at 
think the last figure I had a couple of hours ago was 313,000. So I would be surprised, if not shocked, if I asked for something and I ended up getting 20 times as much in the space of 24 hours. Well, I, I mean, I think shocked. You know, when you're very, very thrilled and very excited, you're speechless for five minutes and then you have a cake. So that was effectively what we did when we saw the numbers going up because um, and it was also a tremendous boost for everybody who has been building together for Yes now um, over the past uh, two, nearly three months now. And I think that that was really what uh, heartened and it really did. My heart felt incredibly warm. And how do crowdfunding campaigns of that sort, how do they um, work with uh, SIPO and regulations? For, for donations. For example, can you be guaranteed that none of this money is coming from outside the state? No, very good. Um, obviously, very good and very important question. And we have um, procedures and protocols in place, which um, I think are pretty robust to ensure that any monies which we do receive, which come from um, a non-SIPOable source or which exceed uh, the SIPO the limits, um, that we can return those monies if that is if that is the case. I mean, generally speaking, the experience is that people are pretty careful um, and do read the small print. And in a somewhat ironic way, I think the Cambridge Analytica furore has meant that people are tending to read small print more than they would have done, say, a month ago. So um, I don't have the figures on that now, Hugh, but we certainly will be getting them over the next couple of days as the analyses are done um, of the extent to which there is any funding coming in from abroad, for example. Uh, But we're not expecting that to be we're not expecting that to be anything significant. Pat, you aroused the ire of quite a number of pro-repeal supporters on social media this week with an analysis piece you did suggesting that Alva's side of the argument had been slow out of the starting blocks in comparison to those who are arguing in favour of retaining the Eighth Amendment. That's almost what I said, actually. Um, what I was doing was reporting the concerns of, uh, of of people on the repeal side. And I was um, speaking about a report that we carried of the launch of a poster campaign uh, that the Together for Yes campaign had done. And I was making the point that, of course, when they went to put up their posters on the uh, on the lampposts, that they found that, uh, hardly a surprise to them, I guess, but uh, many of those lampposts were already occupied by posters for uh, for the no side, for the retain uh, side of the argument. And uh, it struck me that this there was a fear in some uh, repeal circles that they had been a bit slow out of the blocks, that they were faced with a very well organised, very well planned, very well prepared uh, retain campaign and uh, and that the repeal campaign was really only uh, was really only getting moving as some people took uh, took exception uh, at uh, this analysis as they're perfectly entitled to do and I, I, I think yesterday's uh, the events of yesterday and the the extraordinary success of the uh, of the the funding appeal yesterday tells us a couple of important things for the campaign it tells us that uh, I suspect money will not be an object for the um, uh, for the repeal side, I expect that will probably be matched on the retain side uh, of the argument as well. We're probably looking at the most expensive uh, campaign that will uh, that will ever be 
that will ever be conducted. I'm not sure exactly how many posters you'd get for 350,000, but I suspect it's enough to cover uh, to cover well, half the country. Just, just but j- just yeah. to finish, yeah. just yeah. finish. Yeah. One, the other the other thing that um, I, I think it tells us is that there is. I mean, if you look back to the marriage uh, equality referendum, there was a real sense in the campaign of a movement that grew through that campaign for the constitutional change that uh, eventually happened. I think you are looking at a similar dynamic here on the repeal side. I think that movement will grow. But the winning of the campaign on polling day will not be done by people who agree with one another. It will be by people who are unsure in the middle. All of the people who donated yesterday, I think it was 6,000 of them, which is a lot, but not electorally significant, uh, if you know know what I mean. They're all going to to vote yes anyway. The fact that they were donating and a a number of them seemingly donating multiple uh, times Yesterday, I I think that is evidence of their commitment, and they every single one of them will come out and vote on the day. But their votes are already in the bag for the repeal side, and if the repeal side is to be successful, it needs those people to convince the people in the middle who are not yet committed, or who are only softly committed, or who are softly committed to a no vote. Well, now there are at least three, three or four points wrapped up in that there, uh, Pat. So just let me take uh, the, your first point first, which is about planning and preparation and so on. And I would, would really have to point out to you, and I probably pointed it out before, that we had always planned to do a launch um, in March, provided we were getting a 25th of May date and that our posters would follow on quite rapidly from that. We obviously had to get funding into the kitty because we're, you know, a civil society campaign, which has been set up newly. We registered with Zippo, whatever it was, three, four weeks ago when we launched. Um, and uh, this, what, what we're doing at the moment is absolutely our plan. We're following uh, that plan. And we didn't seek to deviate from it when posters went up around. And let me reassure you that there are ample, ample uh, lampposts in Dublin and around the country that fit our posters. Um, but so that is part of our plan. And we are very, uh, very clear that we have a campaign plan. And I think that that in itself actually is indicative of the the discipline and and coordination because we know that uh, we have to sustain levels of of activity and dynamism and so on and grow those over the coming six weeks. So we're staying with our plan and we are very focused on what we need to do. I mean, I think the second point about a movement and a movement in marriage equality, which is, of course, a fantastic campaign. Um, But we have been growing this movement and it has been growing really for the past four or five years. I mean, I was involved in setting up the coalition when there was nothing really on the ground at the end of 2013. And it is over that period of time that we have built that movement and that we have achieved goal number one, which was government commitment to holding a referendum, because that was absolutely not on any government's cards back in 2013. So that uh, has been achieved. And your third point then about reaching out beyond our own what you might call committed I suppose committed voters that's equally true 
for our opponents. That's always true in a referendum campaign, that what you're always aiming for are those voters who are at the current time undecided or confused or conflicted, maybe no, maybe yes. And of course, we look at that very closely um, from the point of view of our own research, whether it's focus group or whether it's polling, as, as we look at other people's polls too, of course. So we're very well aware that the job of work that we have to do over the coming weeks now is to reach out to uh, voters um, rouse their interest in the issue because it is not absolutely a given that this is the number one priority issue on everybody's agenda. I would say probably pretty far from it when when you just think about housing in this country, for example, and then you add in a few Brexit bits and whatnot. So, Although the, it is an issue which people have had to think about a lot yes. and has been prominent in Irish political discourse far more than, say, marriage equality had been before it became a, that, an actual campaigning issue. Of course, and it comes with all the historical baggage that it has. So we are very, very, very well aware of how important it is for us to be doing the talking with people, having the conversations around the country and doing that in a very thoughtful way and also very much in, in sort of listening mode. So the approach is not um, you have to you have to do this, you have to vote for whatever. It's very much what what are your views? What are you thinking of in relation to the Eighth Amendment? Let's take it from there and have that conversation. So we're very, very clear that on doorsteps, on street stalls and in the one-to-ones that we have, you know, in our families, in our workplaces, in our colleges, you know, all the, the, the usual, our friends and communities and so on, that we have to have those conversations and that people don't by any means always find them easy conversations. Is there is there a question, and just in relation to what Pat was saying about winning the middle ground is essentially what electoral, electoral politics is about. Yes. In relation to this in particular, and we've looked at a number of elections around the world over the last while, where um, the question of enthusiasm or dissuading people from actually engaging at all has been has been the swing factor, like in the, in the American presidential election, where, as we now know, certain techniques were used to dissuade people who might have voted for Hillary Clinton from voting at all, yes. not to persuade them to vote for Donald Trump. Yeah. Do you see something similar happening in the dynamic about winning the middle ground in, in, in this particular referendum, that people might, might just be turned off uh, and, and therefore not engage with it? And that might be a problem in terms of from your point of view, winning. Well, it's always a risk and it is, it's always particularly, I suppose, a risk with, the, with this issue precisely because of that historical uh, background that it has. But I would say, first of all, I think Ireland is, is different in scale, obviously, from, if I can put it mildly, from the US or even mm. from the UK. And I think that we are in, in our Together for Yes campaign really quite well placed there because certainly um, we know that our camp, we have we cross so many different sectors. So we have something like seventy or eighty um, different organisations signed up to our Together for Yes platform, and they cross a huge number of sectors. So we reach out in in a very uh, specific, almost kind of niche way to different groups of people, which is of course precisely what uh, those um, campaigns seek to do. So we do that both directly uh, on the doorsteps and at meetings and in gatherings of one kind or another and also online. So it's not only about the Together for Yes at Together for Yes uh, Twitter handle. It's also about parents 
Uh, it's also about grandparents for repeal. It's also about lawyers and medics. It's through the trade union movement. It's through uh, USI. It's through the students. Um, so we, we really cross, I think, a very wide swathe of civil society groupings and do, sectors. Do and that's that working that diversity for of it, because it is a very broad coalition. Does yeah. that make it more difficult for you to have a coherent campaign and a coherent message? Because well, it seems to me that that is one of the difficulties you must face. Well, again, I mean, I think that's very pertinent. And one of the reasons why we formed Together for Yes was precisely to develop and put in place and plan a campaign which would bring all of those strands together. So, in fact, we do what it says on our tin. We have come together for Yes and we have planned our campaign on that basis. And as you know, it was initiated by three big kind of membership organisations, the Coalition Tree the Eighth Amendment, which was my own organisation, the National Women's Council, another very, very big membership organisation, and the Abortion Rights Campaign, which has a huge spread across uh, the country, particularly among Where young Amnesty people. part of it? Uh, Amnesty, who launched their own um, It's Time to Talk campaign yesterday. I notice in, in the papers today, and we're very pleased to, to be invited there. Um, they have uh, their own campaign, their own approach. We work with them just as we work very close. For example, USI have their own campaign. We work very closely with them. Political parties have their own campaigns. We work closely with them. Uh, the trade union movement, similarly. So there are a lot of organisations who are working with us under a very large sort of inclusive, generous, if you like, space, which is Together for Yes. And that includes um, the human rights organisations such as Amnesty. Uh, one of the things uh, that, that strikes me as well, the, the challenges you'll face over the next um, over the next six weeks is we talk about the middle ground uh, uh, all the time as the decisive, uh, the decisive part of it. But there's also the campaign, campaigns, these sort of campaigns have to do two things. They have to talk to the middle ground, but they also have to energise their base. And I, I wonder, you know, do you see a difficulty in between those two objectives in the sort of campaigning and language? I certainly see this difficulty on the other side of the campaign as well, mm -hmm, that the mm -hmm. sort of language and campaigning tactics that might energise your base can repel some of the middle ground? Well, first of all, I think we do have a very energised base and it's a base that has really been building, not least through the the, the organisations and coalitional type um, organisations that have been building for the last several years. And I think that we have achieved at this point now tremendous understanding among the activists on the ground, the volunteers, and they're kind of flooding in in their thousands along, along with the money, I suppose, um, uh, a real understanding of how we, how, basically what kind of messages we give to people. And we see it very much as our role as informing and encouraging voters rather than going out and preaching uh, preaching something which maybe voters haven't had time to gain an understanding of. And I think the principle that we work on is the one that worked in the Citizens' Assembly and the one that worked again in the Joint Committee, which is that as people have information and understanding and when they hear the experiences and the stories that women and couples have been through, 
um, it doesn't take very long for them to say, I see, I get it, I understand, I know now what it is about the Eighth Amendment that is so harmful to women and why it shouldn't ever have been there. So I, I don't think we have at all a problem with that base that is out there, activist, because they are very committed to our goal, which is to remove the Eighth Amendment from the Constitution. And, you know, I am personally very encouraged because, uh, like others in Together for Yes, we're a very big regional organisation. I've been out and around the country for the past couple of weeks and will be out and around for the duration of the campaign. Uh, our tour starts next week, but personally, I mean, I've been back from Killarney um, yesterday morning, Stigo last week, uh, Meath or Westmead this evening, uh, Mayo on uh, tomorrow, Thursday, Limerick on Monday, etc. What do you think of the um, the Save the Eighth campaign so far? I mean, the posters have been up now for a little bit over a week. The, the first round of posters seem to focus on this issue, on the rate of abortion in the UK, and proposing that that, that, is, that will be what will happen here as well. What do you think of that as a campaign strategy? Well, it's not really for me to comment uh, critically on the strategy of our opponents. <laughs> but what uh, I think what I would say, you know, just in ter- thinking of ourselves, I mean, we we are very focused on what we are doing. And I it, just I want to make this point really particularly that there is always a danger on this issue of getting drawn into what the other side are doing and of getting distracted by what the other side are doing and of precisely getting involved in the sort of argument that we could even have here this morning. And we are very, very clear that what we need to do is to keep our eye, in fact, our our, our whole canvassing project is called Project Ear to the Ground, is to keep close to the voters and to be hearing what their problems are, what their reservations are, what their questions are. So, you know, we have a, a whole canvassing programme which is being set up and is actually due to be launched on Monday, which is a a digital uh, programme, to actually really listen to what it is the voters want to know. So that that is not to deflect you. That is to say that we are not to be deflected from what we know we need to do. So strategically, Uh, you're you're not going to engage in what you see as as enemy ground, for example. So this this proposition about about what the rate of abortion will be. We are very willing to engage in debate, absolutely. But we would want, of course, to engage in debate where we could have a sense that that debate would be fair, that it would be fact and evidence based. And of course, we believe that there should be debate. This is a democracy. It should be, we should be able to have debates. What are you saying to your canvassers uh, who are encountering those arguments on the doors or those questions on the doors? Now, firstly, firstly, they're not really encountering that many arguments on the doors. What they're actually encountering is people saying, explain to me a bit what repeal means. So we do actually use the term remove the Eighth Amendment because people understand that. They want more information and more understanding of the proposed legislation, what that would look like. So they are interested to know, for example, about what 12 weeks means and why it's 12 weeks. And, I, I you know, I, I think we're all probably aware that there is not a lot. People often are very ill-informed about pregnancy, even those of us who've been pregnant sometimes by no means have all of the answers. And people people shyly often want to want to know a bit more about what happens. So they do want to understand that. They do have questions around um, 
how uh, how the legislation will work out uh, in practice. What does that actually mean for women? So they do ask things like, well, does this mean there will be late abortions? And you're saying, no, actually, that is not what the legislation is saying. So it's about giving that kind of information that we're getting far more than anything else. But the other point I, I wanted to make... But specifically on that point, the one in five, what But I w- just wanted to come back to, yeah. to that now. Uh, well, we're not getting that question on the doorsteps. I can just tell you that maybe that's because I'm looking at the regions, but to say that, you know, very in a very, very, very simple and straightforward way, we have said all along and we will continue to say that it would be quite wrong to see Ireland as in any way a replica of the UK. And therefore, we do not, uh, our legislation is not in any sense a replica of the UK legislation and indeed nor should it be, um, because that legislation is in itself, I think, inadequate in very many respects. So we don't uh, think that the um, what happens in the UK is automatically reproduced in Ireland. In fact, I mean we know that from the current current figures on abortion rates, for example, and we also know what happens in countries um, in Europe which have introduced, which have legalised abortion, say within the last ten to twenty years. That what you actually find is that abortion rates don't shoot up; they don't sort of go into some kind of zoom area. If anything, a number of countries, including I think it's Spain and Portugal and there's somewhere else I'm going to forget now, Switzerland, I think, and there may very well be others, that they have had a bit of a decline. And the reason why they've had the decline is that you get better um, sex education, better emphasis, more emphasis on sex and relationship education and on contraception information and on contraception availability. So, I mean, again, I think that that's an important dimension in a way of the work that we do uh, out there on, on, on the doorsteps as well. But it is really important for us not to fall into that trap of thinking that because Irish women or women from Ireland have been forced to go to Britain for abortions, that our abortion law is going to be the same as Britain, or indeed that our rates and patterns are going to be the same as Britain. The fact that you force women to go there doesn't mean that actually the same thing happens here. Can I ask you something? There's been a sort of received wisdom around the newsroom where we are here at the moment for months, if not years, that when this referendum finally took place, as we knew it was going to for quite some time, that it was going to be very unpleasant. It was going to be bitter. It was going to be nasty. It was going to be divisive. It was going to be personalised. Um, we're in the very early stages of it right now, but listening to Alva, and we hope to have people in from all sides over the next over the next few weeks, no, no sign of that yet, is there? Or is that stuff happening under the no, surface? No, I don't think so. I mean, there's loads of, you know, mutual abuse on social media. But in a way, that's kind of what social media is for. <laughs> At least it's one of the things uh, that, that it's for. I think the debate will be uh, intense. I think it will be impassioned. And I think that's OK. This is a big decision yeah. for the country to make. Um, I, I, I heard... Uh, uh, one of the doctors from the repeal side on uh, radio this morning saying that she thought that this would be the biggest decision that the country made in her yes. lifetime. Yes. And and it's certainly something that very many people on both sides feel with, you know, uh, uh, it, they're very committed to it, they're very impassioned about it. And I think that you will yes. see that uh, over, over the course of the uh, over the course of the campaign. It does. I'm not sure it will be, I, I'm sure in pockets, it will be bitter and nasty and 
personalised, yeah. you know. Uh, I, I'm sure Alva will become a, a figure, uh, a figure well, for the interestingly, not so far. Uh, to tell you the honest and truth, certainly the other way. I get yeah. a fair, you know, a fair amount of this and that going on 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 Twitter and so on. Perhaps because I'm not a huge tweeter, but I mean I'm out there on Twitter every yeah. day, and I honestly am not getting massive trolling or or anything of that kind. In fact, I'm I'm often quite surprised that it's not more. Because and Pat, I, 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 Pat, Pat is too young, of course, to remember this, but you and I will remember that the, the, the initial referendum was bitter, nasty, yes, divisive and personalised. And in 1992. It was less so in 2002, which was a different kettle of fish. But I, I, I think that that is... I mean, I think you're right about social media generally. It, it is that kind of bubble where the abuse gets. Yeah. But it's certainly not what we're finding around the country now. And it's not my own experience. And of course, the, the reason for that is that, as you and I know, and I far better than you, actually, you, the country has changed really dramatically. So, you know, one of our very key points is that this is about change. But in fact, as I you know, constantly say when I'm out on the, the campaign trail, it's the laws that need to change because Ireland as a country, as a society, has already changed. We know what the reality is. I think we're more open. I also think actually we're more honest about these realities. Also so people are less likely to be bitter about it. And just to say that one of the interesting things is that there's always this stereotype and it happened in the marriage equality referendum as well, that people say, well, of course, older people will be very again this. And interestingly, that was not our experience particularly then. And it's not particularly our experience now. Why? Because older people don't want that Ireland that was so harsh, that was so unforgiving, um, where women really got lambasted and treated so badly. And women in particular just simply say, wouldn't want that to happen now to my grandchildren. Well, there is a demographic imbalance in the... Uh, there uh, is, which, but, which, but, which, which, but which you would expect, but... Uh, but, much but less so, I much think, less so than... One, one final point on that, Hugh, I, I think is that uh, it would be useful, I think, and um, I, I'm not trying to be preachy, but it would be useful for people on both sides to remember that people of sincerity and goodwill can hold uh, can hold differing positions uh, on this. Yeah. But it's also, I think, good campaigning sense for either side to keep that in mind, to keep it civil. Because if we think that the decisive cohort of voters Mm -hmm. is in the middle, they will not be won over by hectoring or abuse. They will be won over by respect. That you're tone policing here. Yes, well, 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 but I I I really... Well, well I, may, I may well be. Is that something to do with the wolf tones? Actually, <laughs> may, may, maybe there is a missed profession there, all right, in relation to preaching. But <laughs> no, nonetheless, nonetheless, I would say amen to that, actually, since you are a preacher. Um, because since the very beginning of um, our campaign, and in fact, all along you know, the last several years, we have said all along, this has to be respectful because if we're not being respectful we're not going to have the conversations. We're not going to be able to have the conversations. I I, I have an inherent reluctance to preach about anything but if I am to do so I think uh, civility in public discourse is one of the things that I might do. I think that is the perfect point at which to leave this conversation. (laughs) In fact we're actually starting a conversation here because we'll be continuing it over the next few weeks but thanks for starting with us here this morning Alva. Thank you very much Hugh and Pat.
And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and engineer, JJ Vernon. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can also always find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. And your views are always very welcome. You can email me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.